At Eckrich, we don't just believe in crafting the finest smoked sausage and deli meats in America. We believe in doing whatever it is you want to do. Treading your own path. Seeing the world. Doing what feels right. And getting creative by skipping the recipe. Because whether you want to change the world or just change up a weeknight classic, Eckrich has got one thing to say. You do you. The following is a message by Glenn Blakeney of Awake Nations. We trust that this teaching will both challenge and encourage you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Awake Nations with Glenn Blakeney is taking the gospel of the kingdom around the globe by means of our miracle crusades and training seminars, as well as our teaching resources. For more information regarding Awake Nations and Glenn Blakeney, please visit us online at www.awakenations.org. Take your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus chapter 1. Uh, let me just tell you that the book of Ephesians was actually written, it was kind of a circulatory track. Paul wrote it, but it's believed that it actually made its rounds to different churches. Um, it is a theological treatise in the sense that Paul is revealing to us a lot of profound truth. Uh, you know, we sometimes call Romans the, the gospel according to Paul, and Ephesians is really... Um, this you know deep theological um, dissertation that Paul gives to us but let me tell you that when we talk about theology which just simply means the study of God then we are saying that we need to know who he is right God obviously gave us the scripture for a purpose what was it we might know him we might understand who he is what he requires of us but before we can understand what he requires of us we have to know him we have to know who he is and so in Ephesians chapter 1 here it's a very profound passage of scripture starting at verse 15 Paul is actually um, sharing with the believers about his love for them and how he would pray for them and it says in verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I heard about you. I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. I've heard about your commitment to the Lord and, and how you're genuinely uh, showing the love of God to others. And he said, first of all, let me just say that I thank God for you. I thank God for you. Amen? And we need to thank God for other people. But then Paul says, but you know what? He said, I'm an apostle. As an apostle, my heart is to see you come to that place where you are fully developed in Christ, where you are a mature person, where you grow up into the fullness of the measure of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how many visions or dreams you've had or, or whatever you might have accomplished in life. He said, I'm going to keep on praying for you. And he said, I will not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And he said, here's what I'm going to pray, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, hallelujah, and seated him 
at the right hand in the heavenly places, at the right hand of the Father, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age and this world, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him, he gave Christ, to be head over all things to the church. Now the church, he says, is his body, the fullness of him. Did you hear that? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me ask you a question this morning. What does Jesus look like? He looks like you. As ugly as you might be. I'm just kidding. As ugly as I might be, Jesus looks like us. He does because he is seated at the right hand of his father in heavenly places. He's not on the earth. He doesn't do anything on the earth. That may be a shocking revelation, but he doesn't do anything on the earth. He's seated in the heavenly places. He is the head. He's the brains of the operation. He's central intelligence. Central command. And he issues commands. He gives orders. He tells us, the body, what it is he wants accomplished on the earth. Just as the brain doesn't pick up a chair and move it, the brain does send a message to my hand, to my arm, saying, grab that chair, pick it up, and move it. That's the way the kingdom of God works. Jesus speaks and he says, this is what I want done on earth as it is in heaven. But if you don't do it, if I refuse to do it, it will not be accomplished. Nothing will happen. And we say, God, why is it that you're not doing anything? Well, if nothing is happening, let me tell you, the reason why it's not happening is because the church is not obeying what God is saying. We are the ones who are not doing it. Let me tell you that when you think about, oh Lord, help me. I'm going to say this in a way that everybody hopefully will not misinterpret what I'm about to say. When you think about, when you look at how we pray in the Western culture, how we pray and what we pray about, I honestly think that for the most part, we do not pray according to Scripture. We ask God to do things for us, first of all, that he's already done. Then, what we end up doing is we focus on our temporal needs. You know, we say, Lord, right now I'm, I'm lonely. Right now I'm, I'm, I'm going through a difficult time financially. Lord, right now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sick in my body. Lord, will you help me? And I'm not saying that, that we don't obviously seek God for healing and for provision and all of those things, but there's a way to do it. For example, if any among you are sick, let them call for the elders of the church, is what it says. It doesn't say, ask your pastor. It doesn't say that, you know, you're to wait for your pastor or somebody else to pray for you. It says you're to call for the elders of the church. You're to pick up the phone. You're to do whatever you need to do and say, hey, I'm sick. I need healed. 
to be anointed with oil. It's our responsibility to do that. So there's a way to do things. There's a, there's a, there's a protocol, so to speak, in the kingdom for seeing our needs met. But let me tell you that when you really look closely at how Paul prayed compared to what, how we pray, there was a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference. Paul, we never see him ever focusing on the prayers, in his prayers on the temporal needs of people. We never see that. You know, I mean, there was one time he had a friend who was sick and he just said, Trophimus is sick. He didn't even say, I want you to pray for Trophimus. He just said, Trophimus is sick. Oh, come on now. Are you tracking with me? We're going somewhere. So Paul, rather than praying that others would experience prosperity, healing, or restoration in their lives, he prayed differently. He tells us that he prays in a way that literally helps people themselves to be able to perceive what God has done for them through Christ. See, what happens is when we have prayer lines and when we have, uh, you know, uh, people that we call up and we say, you know, I need you to pray with me for this and I need you to pray with me for that. The problem so often, and I'm not against that, but the problem so often is we foster codependence. Where literally, what happens if that person's not available to pray with you? Does that mean that's it? You're not going to get your prayer answered? If that person's, if your pastor's not available to pray with you or somebody else is not available to pray with you? I mean, what if Benny Hinn isn't coming to Tampa anytime soon? What are you going to do if you need healed? What if he's not going to come for, you know, in another three years? You're going to say, well, I'm just going to have to be sick until Benny Hinn shows up. See, the truth is, Paul said, I want, I'm praying for you, saints. I'm praying for you, Christians. And here's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that you would have a revelation of his riches. I'm praying that you would understand what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was concerned for people. It wasn't that he was, he was callous and unconcerned. He was concerned for people. In fact, the Bible says in, in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, that he prayed passionately and unabatedly for the saints. Listen to what it says, Colossians 2, verse 1. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Now, the word struggling in the Greek language literally is a word from which we in English get our term agonize. I'm agonizing for you in my prayer. But what was he agonizing about when he was praying for the saints? The next two verses, Colossians 2, 2 and 3. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Say, in him. In him lay hidden. Say, lay hidden. All the riches and treasures. All the riches and treasures. They're in him. Amen? So if we get to know him, if we have a relationship with him, then we also have access to all the riches and the treasures. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am praying that you would have a revelation of Christ's riches. Now we know that Jesus was very compassionate. He was moved with compassion. The Bible says 
at least three times that he was moved with compassion in the Gospels. One time he was moved with compassion. He saw the people, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had been with them for three days and, and teaching them. And so what he ended up doing is he said, these guys are hungry. I'm going I'm to make sure they have enough food. Took care of their physical needs, so he cared for them. There's another time where it says, I believe it's in Matthew 14, verse 14, that he was moved with compassion for them, so he healed the sick. But you know, there's another occasion. It's literally found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 34. It says that he was moved with compassion, and he taught the people many things. Because he was moved with compassion for them, and what does it mean moved? It means that he said, you know what? My compassion, the very, the very compassion of God that is in me is moving me. It's motivating me to do something. What was it motivating Paul? To, what was it motivating Jesus to do? To teach them many things. Teach them many things. So he was moved with compassion. So he said, I, I, need, to, I need to teach these people some things. They, they, they don't know how to live. They, they don't know how to, how to have fellowship with my father. They don't know how to have intimacy with God Almighty. So I need to teach them many things. They don't know how to access my glory. They don't know how to tap into my riches. So I'm going to have to teach them all things. Ephesians chapter 1, our text. Paul's praying that you and I would experience the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. What is he saying? He said the spirit of wisdom, the, the word is wisdom is Sophia. And Sophia literally means the deep wisdom of God. Let me tell you that many Christians are at a superficial level. You know, the Bible talks about in Hebrews not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. A foundation. We haven't gone past the, the foundation yet because we're still trying to repent of dead works. Watchman Nee said, he said, you know what? If you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm living an overcoming life. Sin has no bondage or control in my life and I'm living in freedom. He said, that's a good thing. He said, but let me tell you, that's kindergarten. That's kindergarten. That's the basic. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Watchman Nee didn't say that literally. But that's what he meant. He said, that's the basic. That's the beginning. And how many Christians, professing Christians who've been Christians for years in this nation are still tied up and bound up by sin and, and by spirits and by fear and all these other things that are holding them back from serving God and freedom. Dictions. Why? Jesus was not enough? His power wasn't sufficient? I need Jesus and AA? I need the power of the resurrection and psychotherapy. Now, the truth is that Jesus did it all. He paid the price so that no weapon is fashioned against us shall prosper, that no attack, no bondage, no sin, nothing should have control over our lives. And Paul's saying, I want you to understand exactly what it is he did for you. And so I'm praying that the spirit of wisdom, that deep understanding of God would get a hold of you, of the things that God has done for you, would get a hold of you. And he says a revelation, which literally means, the word revelation means to remove the veil. 
that you would have a revelation. The veil would be removed. In other words, listen to me what I'm saying. He's saying, I'm praying that you would have a face-to-face encounter with God. I'm praying that you would have a face-to-face encounter with God. You know, it says in the book of Exodus that when Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai and after he had spent those 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord, he came down from the mountain, put a veil on his face. He put a veil on his face so that the children of Israel wouldn't be able to behold the glory, correct? Now, you know why he put a veil on his face? Well, if you read the account in Exodus alone, you wouldn't necessarily understand the true purpose or why he put a veil on his face. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the reason why Paul put a veil on his face was to hide the glory because that glory was fading and he did not want the children of Israel to behold the glory that was fading. The glory of the old covenant. Think of it. His face shining like that. He says... That's nothing compared to what we have in the New Testament because that glory was fading. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. He's saying that in the New Covenant, right now, we as New Testament believers, we have the privilege to be able to behold the glory of God with an unveiled face. Nothing between us. Us and God's glory. J.B. Phillips says, But all of us who are Christians have no veils on our faces, but reflect like mirrors the glory of the Lord, where we are transfigured by the Spirit of the Lord in ever-increasing splendor in His own image. We behold the glory of God. A glory that is not fading. A glory that never fades. A glory that increases in the new covenant. So that's why when we sing songs like, you know, take not your Holy Spirit from me, which was an Old Testament scripture in Psalm 51. It's not scripturally accurate. In the New Testament, God doesn't do that. So the problem is that we're like, well, how come it doesn't feel like the glory is increasing in in my life? Let me tell you why it doesn't feel like the glory is not increasing in your life. Because it's not. Because when God does something positionally, it is up to us to to literally line up our lives in order to see it affected practically. He says we're to pray that his will would be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. If it was just automatically done on earth, even in the church, even among the saints, then why would we have to pray about it? Paul continues to pray in verse 18 and 19. Look at your Bible, please. You don't have a Bible... Please, bring a Bible to church. If you do have a Bible, open it up, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be flooded with light. That's what he's saying. In the New Testament language, he's saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light. I'm praying that God would shine his light in your life so that you would understand exactly what it is that God has called you to do in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Number one. 
in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and also that you would know his incomparable great power for us who believe. Let me tell you something about repentance. The word repent means what? Who knows what it means? It means to change your mind, to change the way you think. Metanoia. So the idea is if you're going to change your life, you have to first of all change the way you think, correct? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So the bottom line is, you know, a lot of reason why people stay in bondage is because of propaganda. For example, those who lived in, in, in you know, in communist countries, uh, a lot of times they believe things about, about this nation and about the Western world and about freedom and, and democracy. And even in Islam, they believe things about freedom and democracy that, that is not true because of propaganda. And so in other words, if the enemy... Can, the enemy's way, his tactic, his, his strategy for keeping us from experiencing the truth is by causing us to believe a lie. And when we are misinformed, then we're not able to be whom God has called us to be. Because we don't understand, first of all, who he is, and secondly, what it is that he's done for us. And so the idea, when, when he talks about repentance, he's talking about changing the way we think. And let me tell you that repentance isn't something you do one time in your life. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's a commitment to change your thinking. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. He's saying in the Greek that you must continually allow your mind to be, conformed, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You allow your mind to line up with what the Bible says, with what the Word of God says, and what the truth of the gospel is. And we must constantly submit ourselves because all of us have been taught things that are not biblical. Some of us have been taught things that are not biblical in churches. And we believe things, but yet when you really dig deep and try to find a scriptural precedent for it, it's not there. Paul tells us that repentance is more than turning from our wicked ways. It's more than turning from sin. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul says that he would preach. This is what Paul preached. Do you ready? You want to know what Paul preached? Listen to this. Acts 20, verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice he said repentance toward God and faith toward. He didn't say repentance from he said repentance toward. So in other words, the repentance that God is looking for in us is not just something that I don't cuss, I don't smoke, I don't commit adultery, I don't do these things, but he, he because you can do all of those things uh, and, you know, and, and, and be a quote unquote good person, a moral person, and you're no better than the Pharisees. And unless your righteousness and my righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, we will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> you think Jesus got people upset when he was on the earth? Yeah, the Pharisees said, you know, oh yeah, we not com we, thou shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus walks up and says, oh, by the way, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. The Pharisees said, you know what, thou shall not murder. And Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And we know that no murderer has any place in the kingdom. How do you think people felt? In that day, 
They didn't appreciate it. The people that were determined to live the way they wanted to live and were not really serious about pleasing God but just being religious did not appreciate the ministry of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. So the repentance that God is calling for is a repentance toward him. It's a repentance, church, where we embrace Jesus and his righteousness and the fullness of who he is. It isn't about just going to church on Sunday, throwing some money in the offering, doing some worship. It's about a lifestyle where you embrace the person of Jesus Christ and you follow after him and you identify yourself with him and you become a pursuer of Jesus Christ 24-7, not just Sunday morning or Wednesday night or any other time. See, you know what's happening in this nation, and it's been going on for years, it happens in, in many nations, is we expect people to change to be transformed without an encounter with God. You know, we, we give them the four spiritual laws. I mean, we, we tell them, read this, read this Bible script, read this verse, and if you meant that in your heart, you're saved. <laughs> Did Jesus tell us to do that? Come on now, I'm not hopping over some sacred cows. I know that. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, make disciples of the nations. You know what that means? If you really study the New Testament closely, you will see that they didn't walk up to people and hold up a sign that says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn or burn. They didn't do that. You know what they did? They got into people's homes, and they sat down with them, and they opened up the scriptures... And, and they begin to teach and to pour into people and tell them the things about the kingdom of God. And they disciple people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They disciple people into salvation. Discipleship preceded salvation in many instances in the New Testament. That doesn't fit our theology in the West. What it's doing is it's bringing a person to the place where he sat down with them and reasoned from the scriptures. He showed them what was written in the scriptures. Paul did that. Philip did that. Stephen did that. Jesus did it. He showed them the things that were written in the scripture. He ministered to them. He healed them. He, he caused them to encounter the truth of the word and also the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, people's lives were transformed transformed see indoctrination leads to confirmation but revelation leads to transformation indoctrination is this take this class you know catechism or or take our essential Bible truths class or take our foundation 101 class and we teach people doctrine, and, and doctrine is, is obviously important, but we teach them certain things and truths about the Word of God, but in many instances, it's not something that's encountering their heart. It's not something that's reaching deep into their heart. And so they understand and, and, and give mental assent to certain biblical truths, but that truth has never transformed them inwardly. It's just something that, that they've added more data to their, to their um, you know, mental da database that's all it is and what ends up happening is is it, it's just merely indoctrination we we literally jesus said of the pharisees you travel land and sea to make one proselyte and then he said and then you turn that proselyte into twice the son of hell that you are that you the, yourselves are 
Now, did Jesus say that? How many know that's in the Bible? Okay, get, where is it? Somebody tell me. It's in Matthew 23. Do you understand that? He said, you travel land and sea, you indoctrinate them, and in your indoctrination process, you turn them into twice the son of hell that you are. Jesus said that! Jesus said to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently. John chapter 5. They had memorized the Torah, what we would call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Had it memorized. He said, do you study these scriptures diligently? And yet, he says, these same scriptures that testify of me, but yet you refuse to come to me. You know the word, but you don't, you know the word of God, but you don't know the God of the word. So, indoctrination leads to confirmation, but revelation, revelation is a spiritual process. Paul said that the, you would receive the spirit of wisdom in revelation. There has to be a spiritual process where the eyes of your heart are opened up by the Holy Spirit. And he said, and as a result of that, guess what takes place? Revelation leads to transformation. The Bible says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. And when he says, don't be conformed, the word conformed in the Greek language means, don't be outwardly conformed to the world, but be transformed. And that is the same word that is translated transfigured when Jesus went to the top of the mountain. And it literally speaks of an inward transfiguration or transformation because of your of your uh, connection of your exposure and your encounter with the glory of God when he went up on the mountain Jesus he had a transfiguration in other words a transformation and it was with the glory of God and it transformed him from the inside out and it resulted in and even Jesus being strengthened for the season that he was going to go through. See, true revelation must be restored. We have to have an encounter with the presence of God as a prerequisite for lasting transformation. So rather than trying to change yourself, rather than, you know, on New Year's Eve saying, you know what, I'm going to make it my resolution this year to do this, this, and that, to change this, this, and that in my life. Understand this, that God is saying, I want you to make a resolution to receive the revelation that it is I desire to give to you. And when you see, receive that revelation from me, then what will happen is you will begin to change. See, revelation is an encounter with the presence of God. That's all it is. Remember the story of King Hezekiah in the Old Testament? King Ahaz, his father, a very wicked and evil king, he shut the temple doors, he sealed them closed, he, he set up altars in the streets, and, and literally what ends up happening is when Hezekiah assumes the throne, we're told in 2 Chronicles 29 that the very first executive order that he gave was that the entrances to the temple doors, the gates and the doors, would be unsealed. Those that were shut closed, that they literally would be reopened. Why did he do that? Well, if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 29, you're going to see there in verses 3 through 5, it says that in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. What was he saying? Listen to me, please. He was saying this. He's saying before 
I could call them to, tr to literally consecrate themselves because the leaders must consecrate themselves before the house of God will be consecrated. He says, I called them to literally enter into the presence of God. In other words, he's saying it wouldn't be reasonable for me to expect them to change without the presence of God. See, unsealing the temple doors ensured access into the holy place, into the holy of holies, into the, into the place where God and the old covenant dwelt, so to speak. And it was saying that I am restoring access to, my, to the presence of God. And now that I'm restoring access to the presence of God, you can draw near to God, you can come close to God, and as we come close to God, guess what happens? We receive revelation and we are transformed. We receive encounter with God and we are transformed. Why? Why is it so important that we need revelation? Why is it so important that we come into the presence of God? James chapter 4 verse 10 says, it says this, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. But let me tell you what it really says. If you look it up in a New American Standard Bible, it says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. But if you look it up in the New Testament language, it says, humble yourself before the face of the Lord. Why? Because when you come to the presence of God, when you come into his presence, guess what happens? Remember Isaiah? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. First thing that happened is he said, woe unto me. When you come into the presence of God, you see reality. The truth is put in perspective. You see the condition of your life. It's pretty hard to hold bitterness against your brother or your sister when you, when you come into the presence of God because the Holy Spirit immediately puts his finger on it and says, not pleasing to me, get rid of it. See, that's why it says in Ezekiel 9, verse 9, it says that God was upset with the, the city of Jerusalem because they said the Lord is not seeing what we're doing. In other words, they lost consciousness of the fact that God was there, he was imminent, he was close. And because they lost consciousness of his presence, they gave themselves more fully into sin. Remember what it says in Proverbs? It says, where there is no vision, what happens? People perish. But do you know what it literally says? Read it in some other translations. One translation says, where there is no prophetic revelation, my people cast off restraint. Where there's no prophetic revelation, my people cast off restraint. The word perish, or translated cast off restraint, remember when the children of Israel danced before the golden calf and they didn't have a stitch of clothing on, they were naked? It's the same Hebrew word. In other words, when you, have the, when you lose perspective when you lose revelation and you're not conscious of the presence of God you cast off restraint they threw off their clothes literally part of the pagan worship in that day so you you literally become on you literally be, lose you cast off restraint and you do things that you would normally never do and that's why what happens somebody you know says well I, I God saved me he delivered me and changed my life and then all of a sudden you end up going back to those some of the old things you used to do and you one day it's kind of like you wake up and you go what in the world am I doing how could I even do this because you literally 
became cold and stagnant and, and you've not been, been in that place where you've been having an encounter with God, a revelation with God. So the Lord wants you to plumb the depths of your knowledge of him. He prays that the eyes of your heart would be open, would be flooded with light, that you would know the true wisdom of God, the deep things of God, that you would have a revelation, a face-to-face encounter with him. That's what he wants you and I to have in this day in which we live. Now let me tell you another reason, not just because you can see sin, because that's part of it. So you can see how big your God is. When you are suffering in the natural, sometimes it seems that your problems are so big, but God isn't quite as big as those problems. Now, I I often use this illustration. If you are, you know, let's just say you're out in Colorado and, and, and you're driving along and you see a range of mountains from the distance. Those mountains from a distance may all seem to be similar in size and height. But when you draw near to that mountain range, when you come close to that mountain range, only then does everything put in perspective and you recognize that those mountains are not all the same size and height, that there's one of those mountains at least that is much bigger than the rest. And that's the way it is with God. When we draw near to God, we recognize how big our God is. And that's why the Bible says magnify the Lord. How can we magnify God? Can we, you know, put him on Zoom 150? No, he's saying draw near to God, get closer to God. And when you get closer to God, you will see how big, how grandiose and powerful your God is and how small your problems are in comparison. It doesn't matter if it's cancer. It doesn't matter if it's poverty. It doesn't matter when you get closer to God you're going to see how powerful your God is and we're not going to be able to live the way God is calling us to live without those encounters without those revelation encounters with God see God wants to also show you certain things he wants you to perceive his plan he wants you to know the direction that you're called to go you'll never know it without a revelation you know I really believe that God, he, he's so good in that he keeps us dependent upon him. He allows circumstances and situations to enter our life where we must stay dependent on him if we really want to press through to that next level and go to that place that he has. If we don't want to, we just stay stuck. Some people stay stuck all their lives. They die stuck in the wilderness. They never come out of the wilderness. But God wants us to press through to that other level. And so what he does is he brings us to a place where we just honestly don't know what we're supposed to do. And what is he doing? He's wanting us to seek him. He's wanting us to trust him. Now listen. You have, I have access to the Logos, the written word of God, the graphe, the Logos. But how many know that you can't open the Bible up and it says, move to Boston, Massachusetts? It doesn't tell you that, does it? So what do you need to do? You need the rhema. You need the spirit of God to speak to you. You need the Lord to speak to you and give you direction and show you the way he wants you to go. If you really want to please him, if you really want to move forward, you're going to have to have an encounter with him. If you really want to fulfill your destiny, then you're going to have to have an encounter with him. And see, we have many in the church today that honestly, they don't understand what it means to be a Christian. They, they fail to perceive what Christ has bequeathed to them through his last will and testament under the new 
covenant. In other words, he's left us uh, quite the inheritance, folks. But we, we just honestly don't know what. Oh, yeah, really? What is it? What did he leave me? Well, he left you quite a lot. He wants you to perceive the depth of your destiny. Listen, do you want to know why it was that Jerusalem was destroyed by the enemy and the Babylonians came in the year 586 B.C.? Let me tell you, God says it very succinctly in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to this, powerful verse. She did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. She did not consider her destiny. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you realize what he's done for you? Who you are in Christ. See, destiny starts with the revelation regarding our identity and our purpose. Through a, a, a revolution in our identity. In other words, when we begin to really understand who we are, we can begin to think with divine purpose. Not until we understand who we are based on who Jesus has said we are can we begin to think with divine purpose. And such a change begins with that true knowledge of God, that proper understanding of who he is. And you know the truth is, church, that often we are more convinced of our unworthiness than we are of his worth. See, our inability takes on greater focus than his ability. But the same one who called fearful Gideon a valiant warrior and unstable Peter a rock <laughs> has called you and me to be his sons. He's called us to be sons of the living God. We are not slaves. We are sons. A slave had no right to the inheritance of his master. A son had only had access to the inheritance of his father. And the Bible says in Romans 8, 29, that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. But here's the, here's the deal. In the natural, in that culture, the firstborn received half of the inheritance. He received what was a double portion and then the rest was distributed among his brothers but the Bible says that is not the case with us because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus <laughs> I'm preaching better than you're saying you're shouting I'm telling you if you were to get a hold of this come on now Whew. do you understand what the hope of your calling is that's what he says I want you to understand the hope of your calling what you're called to. You're called to be sons. You've been included into his family. You're called to receive redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Their sins and lawless deeds will, will I, I will hold against them no longer. You're called to literally share in his glory. Do you understand not only your prominent profession, but your profuse provision? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that he hath blessed you and me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He hath blessed us. We don't need to be blessed. He hath blessed us. And so the Bible says that we have to recognize that God provides for us according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He's already made it available. It's there. We don't have to say, God, if it's your will. He said, I made it available. It is my will. It's for you. Now just receive what I've given to you 
Thirdly, your powerful position. Do you recognize your powerful position? Where are you? The Bible says that we are seated with him in the third heaven. Verses 19 and through 21 here of Ephesians. And I'm just going to wind this up within two or three minutes here now. Here's what it says. It says this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, and he says, and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Our powerful position is simply this, that we were seated in heavenly places with Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 5 and 6 says it, that we are seated with him at the same right hand of the Father. Now it says, far above all principality, might, dominion, power in this age and in the age to come. Where is that? Well, the scripture says there are three heavens. The first heaven is the skies. The second heaven is the solar system. The third heaven is the domain of God. We are seated in the third heaven in the domain of God. So there can be nothing higher than the third heavens. So that's why everything is under Jesus' feet. And therefore, because it's under Jesus' feet and the feet are part of the body and not attached to the head, everything is under our feet as well. Your powerful position. <laughs> the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit in you. The same spirit that cast the demons out of the Gadarian demoniac is the same spirit in you. The same spirit that enabled Jesus to multiply the fish and the loaves, to walk on the water, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. That same Holy Spirit is the spirit that we've been given. And we're like, how am I going to make my car payment? Well, maybe we shouldn't be in debt. I think the Bible says something about that in Romans 13. Oh, no man, nothing. Fourthly, his pervasive presence. Notice what it says. In the verse 23, it says that the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you hear that? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me read it to you from the Amplified. It says, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen to this. For in that body lives the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself. Ephesians 3.19. That you may be filled through all your being unto all the fullness of God. That you may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. The scripture says in Habakkuk, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Correct? Some of us think, you know, that's just going to be in the millennial reign or in the new heaven, the new earth and the new heaven. But the truth is that everything that God has, has literally promised that is, is futuristic, that, that is for a, a future time, he initiated here on the earth. For example, the final enemy to be defeated is death. But did Jesus raise the dead? Absolutely. So the truth of the matter is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is to be filling the earth even now. And wherever people will welcome that, God says, I will instill the knowledge of my glory. But listen to this. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, how is the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God? It happens through us. It happens through the church. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and 
through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Isn't that awesome? That's who we are. He wants you to understand who you are. He wants you to understand what he's done for you. Understand that God has done so much for us. I'll close with this. The Holy Spirit did not come to convict the world of our sins. Of our sins. Oh, somebody's getting upset. That's heresy. Let me say it again. The Holy Spirit did not come to convict the world of all of our sins. The Bible does not teach that. You want me to qualify it? The Bible says in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and when he has come, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin. Not sins, of sin. Singular, not plural. And of righteousness. Do you know the Holy Spirit not only convicts of sin, but also of righteousness? And of judgment. Of sin, not sins, of sin because they do not believe in me. In other words, every sin is forgivable, correct? There's only one sin that's not forgivable. And what is that? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's job? To show us the way of righteousness and the way of salvation. If we refuse to receive the truth that the Holy Spirit is showing to us, then we blaspheme the Holy Spirit and there's no other way of salvation. So the sin is that he, he convicts the world of it is the sin of unbelief. The sin of not trusting in Jesus. The sin of not putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Listen to the way the, the message renders these verses. When he comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The godless world's view. Let me add to that that also includes the church's view. Often. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. That righteousness comes from above. Where I am with the Father, I love this, out of their sight and control. <laughs> it's out of your sight and your control. You can't make yourself righteous. You can't give enough. You can't pray enough. You can't fast enough. You can't evangelize enough. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ, and he wants to make everyone righteous. And the only thing that prevents you from becoming righteous is your refusal to believe in what he did. That's what he's made available. That's what he has made available to us. So he says, son, daughter, receive what I did. Stop struggling. Stop fighting. Stop, stop resisting the work of God in your life. And just learn to abide. Just learn to rest. 
just learn to come to that place where you stop trying to overcome and you stop trying to do the right things and you fall on your face and you get in my presence and you say, Father, show me your power. Show me your glory. Father, I want to see you with an unveiled face. Lord, I desire to, to spend time in your presence. God, in the New Testament, isn't looking for weekend visitation rites. He wants permanent custody of your life. He wants to make, to make you his dwelling place. He wants to live in you. He wants to move in you. He wants to have his way in your life. And all of a sudden, you'll begin to see because your focus is not a kick in that thing. Your focus is not overcoming that thing. Your focus is loving Jesus. Your focus is getting into his presence 24-7. Your focus is daily getting in the word, praying, worshiping, loving God, being obedient to him. And as you commune with the Holy Spirit, the power of God, just as it does from the vine, comes into the branch and then and it literally causes the branch to be able to bear fruit. Jesus said that all good trees bear good fruit. It's not the tree that makes the fruit good. It's not the fruit that makes the tree good, but it's the tree that makes the fruit good. The, he said when you, he said literally bearing good fruit is the promise. It's not the process. The process is abiding. When you learn to abide in him, you will experience the promise and good fruit will grow in your life and you'll start to change. How many Christians are there that are out there that are nasty, that are mean, that I mean, come on now. And, and what is it? They know the word. They tithe. They're, you know, regimented in, 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 in a lot of the things that they do, but they don't have that relationship. Jesus didn't say it's what you speak in tongues or you tithe or, or how you worship that all men will know that you're my disciples, but it's your love for one another that will show how much you love me and how much I love you. Come on, let's stand together. I want to pray with you before we let you go this morning. I'm going to just pray with you. This is the kind of message, certainly if anybody would like to be ministered to before we leave, we'll do that. But this is the kind of message that you have to add feet to it. You have to be obedient and begin to implement in your life. God wants you to have a revelation. Remember, Israel was destroyed. Judah was destroyed because she considered not her destiny. Can you see that? He said, I want to give you hope in a future. He said, I want you to see who you are. See, there's a lot of things that have been happening today that God has been coordinating and putting together that confirm exactly what he's trying to say to us. Let me say, first of all, that I was going to even call Jim and Marsh up and say, will you guys do that song, Show Me Your Glory, I Want to Live in Your Presence? I was going to text you and ask you to do that song. I was when I was praying this morning I felt like the Holy Spirit said that song is so important and see what it tells us is that Moses he had an encounter with God but what we have is greater than what Moses has what we have access to and then Jesus lived 24 7 in the presence of his father he said he who sent me is with me the father has not left me alone that's what we have and then even what Deb shared earlier about Jesus and, and, and recognizing who he is and being in his presence. See, that's what he's saying. Church isn't about coming here. It's not about that. You know what? There are places in the world, I can tell you, where Christians are hard-pressed to be able to gather together. I have a friend who, who's, who's a, a powerful man of God. He's from Uganda and he tells a story about how when he was in Uganda and that 
persecution was going on through Idi Amin, the churches couldn't meet openly. And guess what they did? They went into the forest. They went into the swamps. And they began to meet there. And they began to pray. They would pray 12 hours a day in the swamps. They were desperate. They were desperate. Hungry for God. And you know, God changed some things in their country. He was gone. Another man came in who was almost as bad, maybe even worse than Idi Amin, Milton Obote. And the church said, Lord, why is it? We prayed, we fasted, we asked you to change this nation. And then the next thing that happens is we get a leader who's even worse than Idi Amin, who's persecuting and killing pastors. And God said, because you were crying out to me because of the destitution of the situation you need to get to the place where you begin to cry out to me not because of how bankrupt your your nation is or how broken your life is or your your society is but you need to get to the point where you begin to cry out to me out of desperation and hunger for me in other words for your destiny because you, you it's not just well bad times oh lord we need to pray no he says your destiny your destiny what i have in store for your life what i have in store for this nation until this nation begins to contend for its destiny we will never see God bless us the way we are if all we're doing is reacting to the hard times and the difficulties then you know what if the economy improves then guess what we'll be complacent we'll forget about God but we need to get desperate for God where we need to begin to seek after him for the destiny that he has for each one of us I want to ask you before we go this morning would you just come and stand at the front I want to pray over you I just want to pray a prayer in general Eckrich, we don't just believe in crafting the finest smoked sausage and deli meats in America. We believe in doing whatever it is you want to do. Treading your own path. Seeing the world. Doing what feels right. And getting creative by skipping the recipe. Because whether you want to change the world or just change up a weeknight classic, Eckrich has got one thing to say. You do you. 